Melissa Wilson is a very well-known news anchor and medical reporter for TV station Fox 26 in Houston, Texas. On today's podcast, Melissa will talk about her career, which started in 2000 and how it has progressed to the point of her winning many awards and having interviewed many famous people, including presidents, first ladies, actors, and fellow media members. Melissa is also the mother of 15-year-old Caleb, who was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in 2013 at the age of six. Melissa will talk about Caleb, some of the extremely difficult treatment that he endured, and how her employers at Fox were so kind to her as she continued working and balancing her job with her role as a mother of a pediatric cancer patient, as she missed only one chemotherapy treatment during Caleb's battle. Today, Caleb is attending high school and living a life that is as good as possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It is now my pleasure to welcome Melissa Wilson to my podcast. It's great to have you here, and thank you very much for joining me. It is my honor to join you. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your program. Well, it's going to be great to have you here, as my listeners are going to soon find out. Now, I think it's fair to say having a child who is diagnosed with any form of pediatric cancer can strike anyone, including very well-known people, which you certainly are. And we're going to get to your journey with your son, Caleb, a little later in the podcast, but we'll start with your very successful career, which began back in 2000, as you've worked for Fox 26 in Houston for many years as both a news anchor and a medical reporter with many awards that have come your way. When did you first have an interest in current events and the news of the day? As far as current of current events are concerned, my whole life, my parents were really into newscasts. So I remember my first memories are literally sitting in my father's lap watching the newscast. And so really my whole life, my dad and I would race out in the mornings to get the newspaper and we would be flipping through it over breakfast. And so my whole life, and I really think because my parents were so interested in the news, my dad was a weather geek, so to speak. And so he never missed the weather. And so we just grew up watching it. But I didn't ever think about being a news anchor until much later in life. But growing up as a kid, I loved me some current events. (laughs) Well, it certainly prepared you well uh, for your journey, your your career journey. Now, you have a combined interest within, uh, in obviously um, current events in the news of the day with an interest in the medical field, which started as you saw your mom attending nursing school. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, my mom was very concerned about being an empty nester. She was a stay-at-home mom, a very loving mom who was the head of PTA. She was part of all of my classroom head mom, so to speak. She did everything for my brother and I growing up. But my brother went off to college. She could feel that empty nest sort of grasping her. Then I was starting to look at colleges. And 
she was really going through a hard time. And so she had never gone to college and she decided she's a very nurturing person. She decided she wanted to go to nursing school. So I was wrapping up high school again, looking at colleges and my mom started going to nursing school. So then when I started my telecommunication courses, she and I would help each other and we're studying together. But I liked her nursing information more than my telecom. I thought it was very interesting. And so I eventually decided to marry those two, that I would become a medical reporter as well as a news anchor. And it, it's it's been super helpful. She can be my producer. I can call her up and make sure my medical facts are straight. And so she's had a career of almost 40 years in nursing, and it's been very beneficial for me. Well, that is certainly great to hear. Now, you attended Baylor University and its communications school and followed that up with your first TV position at Wichita Falls and in Texas, then as an anchor at a 24-hour news channel in Florida. What were those positions like for you, and how did they prepare you for your eventual move to uh, Fox 26? I don't think there's anything better than being young in life and, and experiencing your first job and working at Wichita Falls. It's a small town of about 100,000 people, and so you're getting to do everything. So I was the evening anchor. I would anchor the six and 10 news, but I also was a medical reporter. I would go out with a photographer, but then I would come back, write my own stories, edit my own stories. And so you're sort of a jack of all trades. I would even help produce the shows. I would write half the show. And so it really helps season you into to being a strong broadcaster. The great thing about starting out in a small market is you make so many mistakes as as a young broadcaster, but you don't get fired if you're in a small market. If you're in a big market doing that, you are out of there, right? <laughs> so it's nice to start out small and then you work up into a medium market, ideally, and then you get into a bigger market like Houston. And so that worked out really well. Being in Florida was incredible because I was anchoring seven hours a day at this 24-hour network. And so that experience ended up getting, I did the math time it was basically working about 10 years as a typical anchor in two years just because of the amount of work that I was able to to pump out. So I feel like I got to Houston faster than I could have being a top 10 market just because it was hour after hour after hour broadcasting there. Now at Fox 26, you spent part of your early career as a nighttime news anchor. Mm -hmm. Then you switched later to become a morning news anchor. Can you describe the differences between the two and which do you enjoy more? Absolutely. I can tell you evening anchor is perfect for someone who is young and single. Now, this is my opinion, okay? I have plenty of married parents who, who work the evening news and they're happy. So I'll just give you my opinion, okay? I want to make sure I say that. For me, it was incredible to do the evening news because I could work out in the morning. I could spend time volunteering. I had my whole morning. I could sleep in, whatever. Then at 10 o'clock after the news, what 10 p.m., when the news was off, I would go meet my friends. We'd go hang out, have a super late dinner, stay up all night. It was great. Then I ended up meeting my husband in Houston. We get married, and it was still okay for babies because he was a, an incredible hands-on father. He could put them to bed. I would be home at 10 o'clock by night, wake them up, and, and spend a few hours in rocking them until midnight or whatever. But then. For me, 
everything changed when my first child went to kindergarten. So it went from being able to be with him all day long and get to to be with him until two. And anybody who has young children knows the morning hours are the good hours because kids are, they're ready to go. They're energetic. They're happy. And then those nighttime blues set in, right? But once he went to kindergarten, the only time I saw him was to get him ready for school. Then I would go to work and my husband, his he had to have a nanny. She would pick him up from school. My husband would take care of him. I never saw him until I woke him up at 10 o'clock at night. So really, I was seeing him 30 minutes awake a day. And I just had this come to Jesus moment that I was born to be a mother and an anchor, but not just an anchor. And I was only anchoring. So at the time, I went to my news director and I said, something's got to give. I love Fox. You guys are amazing. You're an incredible boss. But I can't be a 30-minute mom a day. I just can't. And so at the time, my boss said, well, guess what? You're not going to believe this. Our morning anchor just put in her her resignation and she's leaving. Would you like to try her job? And at the time I said, no way, I don't drink coffee. That was my response. And he was like, no, come on. You don't have to drink coffee. I really think you should try it. Why don't you try it for a week and see what you think? So I was hesitant and he was like, don't quit. Come on, just try it. Just give me a week. So I tried it and I couldn't believe I loved it. So this is how it was different for me. Family, first of all, was incredible. So then immediately I went from being able to, I did miss getting ready for school in the morning, but I was picking him up at school and I was going to the baseball games and I was fixing him dinner and I was putting him to bed. So it was incredible personally, professionally. Morning news for me was more personality. You got to have more fun. You got to laugh. Evening news back then, 10, 12 years ago, was very serious. And it was it was just straight in your face. Here's the news. No ad lib. Where, and, and my hair had to be short. It was... But when I went to the mornings, they said, oh, you can grow your hair out. We're, we're more relaxed in the mornings. Okay, so wrap it up now. I drink coffee every second of the day on the morning news and it's all good. Well, that's that. That's terrific. Now, you realized during this time period what you've called your dream come true when you became a health reporter at the station. What has that been like for you? And can you talk about some of the procedures that you have seen firsthand? I know what you do is you you do your newscast and then you go and uh, chase the uh, the health part of 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 uh, your day. So, can you talk about that? Sure. I can tell you, and this is probably true for any medical professional. You can read about procedures all day and you can understand what it's like on paper in an operating room. But until you've been and experienced an operating room, it's a whole other story. So let's back up to my days in Wichita Falls. I told my news director, hey, I can be the evening anchor and medical reporter. I really want to try this. They'd never done that before, but they were willing to let me. So we had this retired photographer from CNN. So we're talking major photographer, the the chief at the station who was just working in a small town now, right? So I only tell you that because this guy was really good at what he did. And we traveled from my little town in Wichita Falls up to Oklahoma for this brand new eye procedure. And I was so excited. My first procedure, we get there 
the patient is, they're draping the patient, they're getting her ready for this eye surgery. They prop her eyes open. We're in complete scrubs. We've got everything ready to go. We're wearing a mask, which was unheard of back then. It's not like these days, right? So you don't realize how it cuts off your airflow for the first time. So I, they, they've put her to sleep, but she's looking up at us, even though she's out and they're slicing her eye. And I'm sure the mask didn't help, but I start hyperventilating. I pass out cold in the operating room. So all of a sudden, the nurses are worried about me than this patient with her eyes propped open. And when I wake up and I come to, I'm horrified. I've never been so embarrassed in my life. And so we get back in the truck and we're driving back to Texas. (laughs) And my photographer said, I won't tell anybody if you don't. He shot the whole video for me. He never told a soul. He he told me what happened during the procedure so that I could write it. And it was our little secret until now. I think this might be the first time I'm sharing this story. But now I can go to open heart surgeries where they, they open up the chest. They are cracking clavicles. You name it. Blood is literally spraying on my goggles and I have no problem. So we've come a long way, baby. Now, you've interviewed an incredibly uh, amazing amount of well-known people from presidents to first ladies, media people, actors. Can you tell our listeners about a couple of your favorite people that you've interviewed and why that is? Do you know, let me think about that for a second, because that that is really difficult. Um I would say it's more of the A-listers who you expect to make you nervous. Somebody like Vince Vaughn, who you look up to, you see him on the big screen and you think, oh, are they going to be, you know, bigger and better than that? But then just so down to earth. It's so um, gratifying, I would think. I grew up, this, this is just a really fond memory for me and maybe why it was so meaningful. I grew up watching Days of Our Lives soap opera with my grandma since the time I can remember. And so we had the entire cast of Days of Our Lives come in and they stayed with us for six hours of morning news. It was so much fun. We had them doing weather and traffic and then just hanging out with them. It was so fun. I I can't even tell you, I guess, again, because I'd grown up with my grandma, how meaningful that was. But then, you know, you talk, we talk a lot to astronauts here in Houston because of the Johnson Space Center. And to be able to talk to someone about what it was like to be on the International Space Station. In fact, I've actually gotten to talk to astronauts who were right there and and to know what's going on and the research that they're doing to bring back to to Earth. That's always super special as well. And then certainly... Pop, you know, politicians are always very fun to talk to because they're the presidents of the United States. I, I think back to one interview with President Clinton that was very meaningful. He he has the power to make you feel like you're the most important person in the room, whether you agree with his politics or not. So it was impressive to see how he was able to work a room and just no matter who you were, or what town you were from make you feel like you were the only person in the room. I thought that was very powerful and something I will probably never forget. Is it intimidating for you knowing that you're going to be interviewing, whether it's President Clinton or some of the other presidents, first ladies, before an interview, does it does it cause you to pause a little bit and and kind of give yourself a reality check of who you're speaking with? 
Not really, because we all put our pants on one <laughs> one leg after the other, right? That doesn't ever really get to intimidate me. I would think the biggest thing is I just want to make sure I go into it feeling and looking educated to make sure I know the matter or whatever they want to talk about. It's very easy to go into an interview where you can tell immediately through body language, through maybe how their eyes flicker or their hands move that they didn't want to go there. And I try not to do that with anybody ever. I want it to be comfortable and a happy and and a positive experience for them. So perhaps sometimes that makes me not ask some of the hard questions. and, And that's something that I do work on because I just want that person to to be comfortable where they are with me. And that that's really important for me. Now, you've been involved in many charitable causes uh, during your time at Fox, including the March of Dimes, United Way, the Susan B. Komen Race for the Cure, and Children at Risk, among others. The one I'd like to ask you about uh, to comment on would be the Children at Risk Golf Tournament that you've hosted for over 20 years. Oh, it is such a fun event. Oh, my goodness. We do it every spring. And Children at Risk started out in Houston. Now it's a a statewide organization in the state of Texas. And the easiest way to say about this organization is that they look at the whole child. So we're talking everything from a child's health care to make sure that they have the insurance that they need to make sure that their dental care is being taken care of. In fact, in Houston, it's hard to believe if, if you think of Houston, you're thinking of this incredible metropolitan city, right? International city. Do you know that in, in many neighborhoods in Houston, our children's teeth are worse than a third world country? which is ridiculous. It is, there's no excuse for that. These kids can't think straight. They have trouble with their grades in school. It's hard for them to eat. And so children at risk make sure that these kids are getting dental care that they need, even if they can't afford it. They make sure that they have after-school programs to prevent gang activity. They make sure that, and, and are actually the first organization in town, or at least one of the first, to bring to light that Houston was a a hub for human trafficking. So they're going into these neighborhoods, finding out where this is happening, busting those leading officers there, doing what we can to help that. So long story short, the golf tournament you ask about is one of our biggest fundraisers every year so that we can fund that. So while we're not directly working with the child themselves, like many different organizations do, we go to legislators. We are pounding the pavement between Houston and Austin to talk to legislators to make sure they're changing laws, to make sure that they know that we are here and we are watching kids and this is what they need. So many laws, too many to count, have been changed to make sure our kids are taken care of. It's really remarkable. One other thing we also do that is really incredible for parents in the in all of Texas is we grade every single school mostly at this Houston is the ones that I know but every school whether it's elementary or high school and what do you do with that information well if I'm making an F for these different reasons I'm going to my principal of my school and I'm going to say hey why are we failing and parents have So parents take that report card and they insist that their schools do better and since we started that, it's hard to say, maybe five, six years ago, schools are getting better in Houston. We're seeing better grades on STAR. We're seeing kids getting that health care and dental care that I mentioned. So they're really making a big difference. Now, you've won multiple Emmy Awards. Can you talk about some of those and what they were for? 
Yes. What my very first one was just a remarkable, remarkably sad story that we tried to put a spin on it for for I guess education about cancer and making sure that you know what's going on with your body. It was about three young women in their their 20s who grew up together. They grew up together all their lives in Houston, but in their 20s, they started having some weird things going on with their bodies. By 30s, they all finally started to get some help, but by 40, they all died from different types of cancer. They all had children they left behind. It ranged from brain cancer to a woman who thought she was married to the love of her life who had cervical cancer, And the only reason she got cervical cancer is because her husband was having an affair, gave her HPV, and it killed her. And so then her the struggle of her kids and how they deal with not having their mom anymore and knowing that their dad was responsible. I mean, it was just so tough. And then a woman with breast cancer who, you know, young mom who had four kids and just so devastating and what that looks like for those kids trying to deal without their moms. And then the other was about a condition called trichotillomania. And that is the the want and the yearning and the need to pull all of your hair out because you're hurting so bad. And then a lot of these children, teenagers eat the hair. And so that causes all kinds of digestive disorders. And so there was a child or a, a young lady who, who openly talked to me about what this was like. And then once they start pulling out the hair so many times for years after years, it it won't grow back. And so what it was like for kids to make fun of her. And so there was a local school in Magnolia, Texas that came forward and it was the entire school and they had they decided that they were going to do an awareness campaign on bullying and, and what they could do to try to prevent this. And I was so impressed with those kids and their insight about how they were going to make a difference. And there really haven't been any bullying issues since they did that, all because of this child who came forward and said, this is who I am and this is what I look like. She stopped wearing wigs. She she just went with her bald head and she was so bold and it really changed who those kids were by by seeing her. That's uh, quite a story. I'd never heard of that uh, type of situation uh, um, occurring when you have some sort of a, uh, an illness or a disease that you pull your hair out. That's just, mm-hmm. uh, really remarkable. Now, not to let the, um, people, at the Emmy awards think that they're the only ones that honor you. You've been, you've won such awards as the Gracie award, the Houston press club, Lone Star award, Houston magazine said you were one of the 50 most influential women in Houston. American Radio and TV nominated you for Personality of the Year, and the Fair Care Center of Houston described you as a living legend. What are those accolades meant for you? They mean so very much to me in a, in a number of ways in that I guess I've always tried to have a soft heart to try to help others. And sometimes for journalists, that doesn't work out so well. I think a lot of times we're 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 thought of differently in the media. But I, I try to volunteer as much as I can and not just to put it on paper and say, hey, this is this is where I'm volunteering, or not just, oh, 
Fox would like me to volunteer this many hours. It just doesn't work that way for me. It's something I really enjoy doing. And there are a lot of things that my family and I do to volunteer that we don't put on social media, that we don't try to say, hey, look at us, look what we're doing. We just do it out of the goodness of our hearts. I feel like when you get an award, like the ones that you mentioned, it means people see that, that people get that, and they respect that. And it just, it means so much. What would you say would be your favorite part of your job? I feel like on some days I'm I'm like a teacher and educator, especially if there's breaking news. I can't tell you how empowering it is to be the very first person to tell somebody, listen, this is what's going on. Whatever you do, if you live on this side of Houston, do not leave your home because there are dangerous fumes right there. It, it would be very very detrimental to your health if you were to leave. You're going to stay there. This is what's going on. Don't panic. We're going to help you out. We've got a massive chemical leak. And that, that would just be one example. But just to be able to help people and to make sure that they're safe, to let them know, hey, if you're heading out this morning and you want to head out on that freeway, might not be a good idea if you go in that direction. Just something that simple that can make a difference in somebody's life is empowering. It feels really good. Almost like I said, an educator versus a, a talking head, so to speak. Perfectly understandable, uh, without a doubt. Now we're going to pivot from your great career, and we're going to turn back to the year 2013, when your son Caleb was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia during his first week in kindergarten as a six-year-old. Did you notice any suspicious symptoms as a run-up to this diagnosis, or did it come as a surprise to you and your husband? Oh, big breath here. Okay. So as a medical reporter, and at that point, I'd been a medical reporter for 10 years. I had interviewed too many leukemia patients to count dozens through the years. I had participated in events like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Light the Night, where I would emcee the event and go and, and welcome everybody. Then that meant interviewing leukemia patients, interviewing their parents, talking to them about signs and symptoms and what that looked like. I had been into too many children's rooms to count where we would have candlelight vigils. And, and begging for Houstonians to pray for them outside their their cancer room because they, we didn't know if they would make it with their leukemia diagnosis. So to say that I knew what leukemia looked like is to put it lightly. So when my son, he was in, it was, I guess, the end of his preschool year, when he started having symptoms that scared me to death, I immediately took him to the pediatrician. That meant he would say, mommy, my shoulder blades hurt. Well, what five-year-old tells you their shoulder blade hurts? And then he would say, my legs hurt right here, meaning his shins. Why, do my sh why does that hurt so bad? He didn't even know what to call it, but he knew it hurt. And that worried me. Take him to the pediatrician. No, it's growing pains. It's typical. Don't worry. So I said, okay, fair enough. Then he started running low-grade fevers. And we're talking 99, 100, true low-grade fevers, but over a week at a time that didn't go away, then two weeks, then three weeks, then four weeks. And so once a week, I'd go back, we still have a fever, but doctors don't consider that a fever. So it was blown off. Oh, he's fine. He probably just has a virus. And I'm thinking he's got these weird aches and pains. He has a low-grade fever for a month. He's very weak. He doesn't have the, per the, the personality or the appetite. And, and I kept 
being told after three opinions, and, and no offense to doctors, I know that they're not expecting cancer in a five-year-old. I get it. But I know I knew my child. Three opinions, no, it's growing pains and, and different viruses. He and now he's got a sinus infection. They even did a, a CAT scan on his brain to see if there were sinus infections that and something deep in his sinuses. You name it, we went through it. And this went on for months until he finally collapsed. And I had been to three emergency rooms. I had been, and everybody kept telling me, at one point, my pediatrician told me I was an over-paranoid medical reporter. That, yeah. that I, I, And so that's the diagnosis that he got. And I, I say, I laugh so that I don't cry. But finally, I had a PR person, and I'd never used my job before. But I called a PR person that I knew at, can I name it? Can I say the name of the hospital? Absolutely. At Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Now, that is one place I had not taken him to yet because every time he had had a really bad problem, we had been out of town or something had happened. So I hadn't used them yet. But I wanted to start out with them fresh because I knew how strong they were. I knew they were considered number one. So I call her and I say, listen, nobody believes me. I have been dealing with this for months. I cannot go into this ER and them tell me that I'm an over-paranoid medical reporter, that low-grade fevers for two months are normal, that these kids, I need help. I need someone who will believe me. So she said, I, this is who you call. So I call him. I get him into the hospital. And that night, my husband and I were told, we don't have the definitive diagnosis, but I can tell you that you need to pray for your son like you've never prayed before. And, and be ready for tomorrow to be one of the most difficult days of your life. So we slept in the hospital that night. And remind you, I'd been a medical reporter at that point for 10 years. So we were at that point, we're on an infectious disease floor because they were thinking maybe it's Lyme's disease or something like that. So the next morning, the head oncologist of Texas Children's Cancer Center, who I'd interviewed too many times to count, walks in the room with tears in her eyes. And I start bawling. And she holds me so tight. And my husband and my parents are in the room and nobody knows why I'm crying because they don't know who she is. And she didn't ever tell me. She didn't even have to tell me. So I knew before. So we held each other for a long time. And that's when she told us that it was cancer. It's quite a story. And I can't tell you how many times I have talked to parents, mothers mostly, that have had the same experience that you have had with pediatricians who... Uh, Again, you, the, the, you're not excusing them. They're, I mean, you're not, um, you know, defending him uh, that they didn't know what they were talking about. They just have not dealt mm -hmm. with um, with this sort of thing. But again, uh, it was unfortunate that it happened, and fortunate that you were smart enough to to to, to keep pushing. So you get the diagnosis, and then Caleb goes through a three and a half year period of treatment it looked like everything but the kitchen sink and maybe even that was thrown at him can you talk about that time period yes there were about 10 major drugs from chemotherapies to steroids that that he took during that time and when you think of cancer most people know cancer i i believe as they think of it as a three to six months treatment, because you're thinking adults, right? You have these pushes of chemotherapy where you might go into the hospital once a month. But with childhood leukemia, 
It is three and a half years of chemotherapy for a boy. It's one year less for a girl. Three and a half years every single day. You don't get a one-day break. It's every single day. So with that comes the very first year is the most difficult. And that is where it is a major, major high push that keeps their blood levels at an incredibly low level. And I think back then, it was so unusual because we couldn't leave our house with him for a year. The only place he went was the hospital. That was it. Well, now we got used to that during the pandemic, right? I feel like now that would be so much easier to embrace because we've been there and we've done that. We've been able to learn how to stay home. But then nobody knew how to do that. My friends couldn't believe I wouldn't MC an event or that I wouldn't go out to dinner with them because I might bring home a germ to him. So the only place I went was to work and home and we couldn't even go to church. And that was even before most churches were online. And so it, it felt so empty for us because we only had each other. But we decided, well, let me back up. So the very first day my son was diagnosed, you're all childhood cancer parents are given a social worker. And they come in and they told us, here are the stats. It's been too long for me to remember, but they said, this is the number and this is the percentage of marriages that won't make childhood cancer. The number was shocking. It was the majority of parents don't make it. So right then and there, and I'm I'm faith-based and I know everybody has different beliefs, so I'll just share how I feel. My husband and I went down to the chapel at Texas Children's Hospital and we got on our knees and we begged our God to make this cancer diagnosis, strengthen us, not rip us apart. And we made a vow that no matter what, we would make this be better for us. No matter what the outcome, we were going to be stronger, we were going to be better, and we were going to stay together. We ended up having a blast that year that we never left our house. We jumped on the bed. We um, we laughed at my son who was taking these steroid pushes that made him have crazy cravings. Do you know what he would want it to in the morning? Fried fish on top of pancakes with mayo on the top. I mean, it was so disgusting. I actually remember one morning putting a nose clip on so I didn't have to smell fish and pancakes cooking at the same time. But we just decided to laugh at that and, and to embrace it. And and the the best way to say how that year turned out, my station, one of my reporters came in and interviewed my oldest son who was in the third grade at the time. And she said, Zach, how has this year been for you? You haven't left the house in a year. And he said, it's been the best year of my life. My mom's been MC so many events and my dad came home from work every single day and we played more games than we've ever played. And to hear him say that this year was the best of his life was this aha moment that as long as you're together, it's okay. You don't have to have exciting trips and every vacation was canceled, but we were happier without him. You don't need all that. You just need each other. It's a very good message, of course, to send. Now, during this period, Caleb had what you described as three big scares, which were very close to being totally disastrous scares. Can you talk about those? Yes. This happens at I wish somebody had told me this too. It's almost like they spare you in the beginning. And, and then after meeting all the 
different cancer moms through the years, I've learned this. It pretty much happens to every leukemia patient. I don't know that anybody's ever been spared. It depends how many. Some people get one scare. Some people get five. But it just happens when you're taking this many drugs. So typically what happens, your 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 blood levels, the white blood level is and the red blood levels, what you know, they really keep an eye on those. What happens if you even get a little bit of a virus, it could just be a little cold when you're on chemotherapy, those numbers drop. But when you're on chemotherapy, those numbers drop to zero. So what happens at that? If you don't, if you have zero white blood cells and you get one more infection, it can take your life. So the the worst one I remember is he was at zero for 10 days and they ended up transferring him to the transplant floor. And that was so that when we went in to see him, you went through three layers of cleaning your body and yourself and your hands to get to him. That's how we had to be because he, his system couldn't handle anything else. And you certainly don't want to be there to be the loving parent and give him something. And so it, it's just that, that, moment of having to have faith over fear and doctors saying, we don't know when it'll go up. There's nothing we can do when the, when the white blood cells are that low, typically you just have to wait for it to go up. But as a parent, you want to fix it right then. You don't want to wait day after day after day. And, you know, every day the doctor comes, you know, shaking their head. No, I'm sorry. It's still at zero. And it's just so frightening because, you know, one germ is all it would take and and it's over. Well, thankfully, that, of course, didn't help. I mean, uh, didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, did the fact that you were a health reporter and before that uh, obviously had a huge interest in medicine help or hurt you as you were trying to deal with uh, Caleb's cancer? I would tell you in the beginning stages, it hurt me because you know how the news is. The, the majority of the stories that that came in my mind were the candlelight vigils where we were praying over that leukemia patient who didn't end up making it. So in the beginning stages, all I could picture, there was this one little boy and I will never forget him as long as I live. He gave me a mustard seed on a little coin and he his, his he ended up passing from leukemia. But his his goal in his little life was that he was going to give as many mustard seeds as he could. And his parents bought tons of them, probably thousands of them. And he passed them out to so many people trying to tell people, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that you can move mountains. And so I still had that mustard seed sitting on my desk. And I thought about him every single day. And that mustard seed was such a, a pivotal moment for me because with Caleb's diagnosis, because I picture that precious boy being gone and his parents burying him, but he gave me this mustard seed that told me to have faith. And so I I would go from not wanting, you know, to lose my son like we lost him, but to keep that faith. And that boy who was gone gave me so much faith through that mustard seed. And so I decided that I was going to use his life to do what he wanted. And I was not going to ever fear death again. And I put that behind me. And so I kept that mustard seed with me everywhere I went and it fueled me and I I put all negative thoughts behind me and I practiced faith over fear. Certainly worked uh, very well for you. Now, as you said, all you did during this period was go to work and come home. And of course, you're with a, a major news station. 
Can you describe the treatment that you receive from Fox 26 during this period? I've never seen anything like it, to be honest. The general manager from day one, he he's also a Christian man and his wife as well. And he told me, whatever you need, we are your Fox family and we are here. And I've had several news directors since then, but they were the exact same way. Everybody on the same page that in this situation, it will always be family first and your Fox family's got you. And so I don't think that happens a lot in the workplace. And I'll tell you why. I would see so many moms who ended up losing their jobs because nobody can handle this year or very few companies are going to deal with this year after year after year. And it doesn't end after three and a half years of treatment. You're going back to the cancer center every month for a year. Then at, at the two-year mark every other month, this goes on for years. So I'm at the nine-year period and we're still going to the cancer center. I was there two days ago. So to have the support to say, no matter what, that's first. I never missed one chemotherapy appointment. I, I They would allow me to either use FMLA if, if he had those long hospital stays where I, I could be there, I would not have to come to work or I could use my sick leave. Or they would say, if I felt strong enough, I would sleep at the hospital and I would go into work and, and I would just come and go. I would just work to anchor and I would go right back. What they did was so above and beyond anything any employer could do. It, it was just remarkable. But you know what it makes me? It makes me a loyal employee and it makes me love my job so much. And I have so much appreciation for that. Now, was it a known fact at the time uh, while you were on the air and while uh, Caleb was going through the worst period that he did have cancer and that you were dealing with something or was it something that was not talked about at all? No, I felt like from day one, I'd always been so open and honest with everything with my viewers. I felt like they needed to know. And that was back in the beginning when social media was really starting to heat up with anchors before you really stayed off. You might have had a private page, but not necessarily. But at the time, I was just starting to get on social media a whole lot more with my job. So I decided I didn't want people to see my puffy eyes on air if I'd been crying the night before. I didn't want them to say, hey, what's wrong with her? Or I wanted them to know. I felt like it, they needed to know so that they might give me some grace so that they might not. Because we get some pretty rough emails. Oh, your hair is hideous. You get, If I had bedhead from the hospital, I wanted them to know. So I talked to my boss. I decided we'd been in the hospital a week, I guess, back in 2013 when I finally put out the note on my, my personal social media. Hey, this is what's going on. I would if you if you believe in the power of prayer, if you would pray for my family, we need you. I'm going to be in this for the long haul. So forgive me. I may not look, you know, I may not look rested for a while, but I will be here. If I'm at work, I'll give you my all. But I, I may be off. I may be taking some time off. I just warned them. And the outpour of support was incredible. Now, what I did decide along that journey is that people weren't turning it or tuning into my my Fox 26 Facebook page or Twitter to know about my child's cancer. I didn't feel like that was fair. I thought maybe they wanted to turn to me for the latest health news. Maybe they wanted the latest weather or, or traffic update that I could provide through Fox. So at that point, I decided I would no longer put anything on social media. And I had a blog going on called Caleb's Courage. And so I told people, if you want to follow his journey, 
you can go there. That way, nobody is just flipping through their Facebook page and have to see my child in the hospital. But if they want to see what's going on with them, they have that choice to go there. And so that really helped a lot. A ton of my viewers got on there and they were very supportive, but you had the choice. And I think that really made a big difference. Now, toward the end of his journey, and we had a lot of celebrations going on. Honey, I was posting every day that changed things after that three and a half year mark. Now, during your pregnancy, you suffered a pulmonary embolism, and you thought that that might have contributed to Caleb's leukemia. Did you broach this with Caleb's doctors? And if you did, what did they say to you about that? Yes. And that was something that, um, you know, another thing of, of gross negligence, I don't know what you can call it. When I had a pulmonary embolism, I had told the and, and I will not mention any hospitals here, but I had told them I am trying to get pregnant. I don't want any, as a medical reporter, I knew. And I said, I don't want any radiation unless you can promise me I'm not pregnant. And so they, they, there's two different type of pregnancy tests they can give you in an emergency situation. One gives you an immediate, here we go. The other one takes a little longer, right? So they look at hormone levels versus numbers. It, it gets confusing. I won't even go there. They gave me the one in an emergency situation where they could tell them right then. Well, it showed to be false, but it was a false negative. I was pregnant at the time. So I got massive, massive radiation multiple times over and over during this pulmonary um, embolism scare. What's so ironic about that they figured more than likely I had a PE because I had been on birth control for a while. It was the only reason they could figure it out. Obviously, I wasn't on it at that time. But how ironic that I was on birth control that probably gave me the PE, but ended up getting radiation during my pregnancy. So I started doing all kinds of research. Once I found out I had been pregnant, what happens when you have massive radiation? The first thing that that pulls up instantly is leukemia. And so I talked to every expert I could find. Is this child at risk of this? What can I do during my pregnancy now in order to, to reduce that risk for him? Is there anything I can do to get the radiation out of my body? What do I do? And everybody said, no, the only thing you could do is if you're concerned as a board, well, for me, that wasn't an option. So my husband and I prayed over my belly for nine months and begged God to, to remove anything that might be in there if it was radiation. And then he was born and he was healthy and we thought everything was great. And then five years later, it all began. So you asked me what my, my what the doctors thought about it. They did all kinds of genetic testing to find out if there could be a genetic part of leukemia. Leukemia is typically not genetic, at least his type. So they ruled genetics out. And then his, I never... I never knew if his oncologist told me this to make me feel better or if she truly believed it, although she's an expert, so I feel like she truly believed it. She did not think that that, that contributed. At least, that, at least that's what she told me. I My gut instinct says how, and I have struggled with, because I lived, he suffered, and that's been very difficult for me. But through the power of prayer, I've I've worked through that, and I had to be honest with him. I had to tell him, you know, I feel very like maybe because mommy lived that that you suffer. But he's like, but mom, that means I live too because I was in you. <laughs> so in the end, everybody was just doing what they could to save me at the time. So who knows? Your uh, older son, Zach, is, I believe, three. He'd probably be around 18 years old now. Yes, that's like correct. That. And of course, he watched his younger brother go through uh, a, a horrific period, even though he was much younger. 
did that have an as you look exact now did what caleb went through have an effect on him being his older sibling i will tell you for mental health as far as mental health is concerned the cancer was harder on the sibling than it was the child who went through it so caleb even though there are so many organizations that help you through this, like the Sunshine Kids in Houston, they take us to all the big games. We're meeting the NFL players. We're down in the tunnel, high-fiving them before a game. We're hanging out with the Astros on the field, throwing the first pitch, right? I mean, we've got the Periwinkle Foundation who's having us climb these amazing walls and zip lines and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And, And Zach, the older one, got to be a part of that as well. And so you're thinking, okay, so maybe that's helping mental health. And it did. But I think there was something catastrophic that happened with my older son early on and that a someone told him that if he brought home a germ to his little brother, that it would kill him. So Zach, as a third grader at the time, or a second grader, I guess, at the time, took that so very seriously that he started washing his hands until he couldn't wash them anymore. And pretty soon his hands started bleeding and cracking. And there was nothing we could say or do to make him stop. And so there was another little boy with an absolute heart of gold who saw this unfolding. And he actually developed a product called Sotion. And it it was this lotion and this soap that was mixed together. And he actually still sells it today, all these years later. And and a huge amount of the proceeds go to Texas Children's Cancer Center. He's raised thousands of dollars for the hospital. I mean, what an amazing kid. But I believe it started these tendencies with OCD for for Zach. And so he has struggled with that all of his life of of just needing to be a little extra clean. And and there were no tendencies before that. And I just feel like it spiraled him into that. And but I can tell you that he he's done really good of putting those tendencies to help him. So his grades are better because he pushes for that perfection. You know, it, it, it's been some good in his life because of it. Certainly glad to hear that. Um, again, siblings can have such a difficult time as uh, Zach obviously did. Now, after nine years, Caleb has transitioned into law, the long-term survivors program mm-hmm. and needs to be seen now once a year. He's 15 years old in high school. How is his health? How is he doing academically, socially, and with the activities he's participating in? And has what happened to him held him back in any way? No, I would say it's propelled him, to be honest. He is so resilient. He's so strong. There is no small stuff. (laughs) We all sweat the small stuff. And he won't ever let me do that. And he reminds me on a regular basis if I'm upset about something silly and and he's just such a bright light. Caleb was expected to have some major mental deficits because of of all of the chemotherapy and all of the drugs that he took and especially in math. And I don't know what happened if it was all the prayers over him, but we did not I say we because it's a whole family thing. We did not suffer that. Instead, there there the statewide exam that Texas administers to all children, he got 100% the past two year on every single section, which is rare. He's a straight A plus student without cracking a book. He has a photographic memory. And so he wants to be a doctor. 
He wants to be, his biggest memories at Texas Children's Hospital in the beginning is how scared he was before his procedures. And he had dozens of them, getting a port put placed into his chest for all the chemotherapy, for spinal taps, for all the bone marrow biopsies. And so he was put to sleep a lot. And so he would be petrified before because he, you know, he's in this cold, sterile operating room. He knows he's about to be put out. But the last memories he has before is an anesthesiologist standing over him, calming him, telling him it's going to be okay. That would be the person who was holding his hand and cheering him on to wake up. And those memories are so powerful. He wants to work at Texas Children's Hospital someday and do that for kids. So luckily, his brain is... uh, not affected, which is huge because I think that'll help him in medical school someday. But he played football all through junior high, which was incredible. Unfortunately, his uh, he had too many concussions for his oncologist to be comfortable with. So she encouraged him to not play high school football. And he agreed at her begging and pleading. <laughs> he loves her very much. And uh, he thinks of her as a second mom. So she you know, talked him out of it. And I think it was probably a wise choice because she said, Caleb, I've brought you this far and your brain is not affected. Let's not let it be. And so fortunately, he's doing very well. What has Caleb taught you and what has this whole experience taught you? I would say Caleb has taught me resilience. I've seen him lose his hair four different times. I remember the uh, there are moments that you'll never forget when it was falling out in his dinner plate and there was hair all over the table. And my husband and I knew it was time. He had so much hair and we knew it had to go because he couldn't eat. It was all in his mouth. It was in his eyes. And so my dad and I said, do you want to shave it? And he said, yes. But I remember when we shaved it, uh, him looking in the mirror, and I'll never forget the guttural yell of, of what he felt when he saw himself bald because he'd already lost his eyebrows at that point. And I'll never forget that sound. But I'll never forget at midnight, he came and got in bed with me and he said, Mommy, I don't need hair to be happy. And so um, I think that he taught me how to be strong and a, and a, a quick turnaround, right? Like you can be sad for a second, but boy, you can turn it around and you can you can find the bright spots in any dark day if you look for it. And and just not to feel sorry for yourself, right? Just do what you can to, for us to to keep that faith that everything's going to be okay, to not concentrate on what could happen, but to look to the bright spots of what hopefully will happen. I would say the whole experience taught me that really good comes out of bad. We had more positive experiences than than my kids ever would have gotten without cancer. Like I mentioned, being in the Texas tunnel before a football game or getting to experience all those Astros, things like that, people they've gotten to meet that was so special for them. Being on the floor of the the Houston Rockets basketball court, so many things like that, that they love those memories as boys. Good things happen out of really bad things like cancer. And I think we smell the roses a lot more than we did before cancer. Where can people get in touch with either you or some sort of a, a website to read about you uh, and, and read about Caleb and your family? Because we've only mentioned really a litany, a, a small litany of other things that you do during the day mm-hmm. outside of uh, the volunteering and, and, uh, and your job and everything else. So you have a lot of 
amazing things that people I'm sure would love to read about. So any mm-hmm. suggestions would be great. Oh, sure. So if you want to go back on the journey of Caleb's cancer, I haven't updated it in years. I, I ended up even doing the ringing of the bell when he finished his cancer treatment online through Fox 26. So I, I need to go back and just like make an ending to the blog. Yeah. But that's Caleb's Courage dot blogspot.com. And that started, I'll just quickly tell you, that started with a very good friend of ours who told me at the time I, I was being inundated by by text messages and emails and I couldn't keep up with them. And she said, I'm starting a blog for you and you don't have to keep it up, but I'm going to do it for you for the first couple of weeks. If you get strong and feel like you can update it, you can. And so she said that way, I'm telling everybody to leave you alone, mama. You take care of your child. I'll take care of the details. So she did it for a couple of weeks, but then it ended up being the most healing space for me where I could go and I could put out how I was feeling and how miserable I was or how beautiful the day was. And then I had all that support team to say, you go, you've got this. We're praying for you, Caleb. Mom, we got you in prayer. That helped me so much. It was such a blessing. So you can go and check that blog out. And again, it's old. I haven't touched it in a long time. Or you can go to fox26houston.com. We have all kinds of, if you go to About Us, that's where you can find my bio and a little more about, about what I do for Fox. And then on Facebook, just look up Melissa Wilson Fox 26. You can do that on Twitter or Instagram as well. Well, as we come to the end of this podcast, I want to just first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to give such an eloquent and wonderful interview about your career, about Caleb. And um, my listeners, I'm sure, are going to be going to love your podcast because it really was terrific. And I want to congratulate you on what you've done professionally and uh, personally, because uh, taking care of Caleb during that time period was uh, every bit, uh, I'm sure, a challenge that uh, maybe even more than than what you do on uh as a as a reporter uh both as an anchor and a healthcare reporter a um, healthcare reporter and i want to wish you the best of luck as time goes on oh such an honor to talk to you thank you for inviting me on and just big hugs to all your listeners well you have a great day and thank you very much you do the same i hope that you enjoyed listening to melissa talk about her more than interesting life and as we all know Being such a well-known and accomplished person does not give anyone a free pass when it comes to having a child diagnosed with pediatric cancer. Thankfully, Caleb is doing very well, which is great news for the Wilson family, for Fox 26, and for all of us who have taken this pediatric cancer cause to heart. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Leslie Hacker, who will talk about her now 20-year-old daughter, Lauren, who was a two-time survivor of acute myeloid leukemia. Leslie will also talk about her Lolo's Angels nonprofit, which has funded nearly 60 bone marrow drives, has donated $100,000 to the Survivors Clinic at Children's Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, and concentrates on giving grants to pediatric cancers, which lack the funding that they really need.